Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. We often think of caregivers in terms of people who are older adults caring for a parent and in terms of being middle-aged and older, but today's guest is among a little-known group of people who are forced to take on the role of caregiver at a young age. It's a group that's sure to increase as medical advances enable Americans to live longer and people start having kids later in life. Natasha Rodin was still in high school when she was called upon to help care for her grandfather who had Alzheimer's disease. She's now well out of high school and she owns a business, but Natasha remembers those years clearly and she's here today to share those memories with us. Natasha Rodding, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So you you come to us from Florida. Tell us a little bit about your background and uh, how you wound up down there. Uh, Sure. My my mother lived with her parents um, after she and my father divorced when I was just an infant, so I was raised in a house with three of them. And uh, then eventually, just with my grandparents, my mother remarried. My mother and my grandmother are both nurses. Uh, my mother still is. And my grandmother only retired a few years ago, and she's 80 this year. Wow. So, um, <laughs> so I was I was in very capable hands. And when my grandfather fell ill with Alzheimer's uh, at a relatively young age, he was 56. My grandmother was attempting to take care of him as best she could at home. It wasn't really her area of specialty. She was an OB nurse, delivering babies every day, but we were more equipped than most. So mm-hmm. um, we felt confident keeping him at home as long as we could and and trying to, to help keep him as comfortable uh, as possible. So from that point, you know, eventually we were, we were not able to keep him at home, but there were many, many years where his de- disease progressed that we were the sole caregivers. Uh huh. And so you kind of began that process when you were in high school, and yes. um, your grandfather was diagnosed really at a young age. How yes. did how did that affect your 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 dynamics? Well, we we honestly couldn't believe it, but it. I think everybody who and I know that many people who who identify as caregivers, it's not just Alzheimer's or dementia. There's lots of things that can put you in that position. But for this particular sure. uh, diagnosis, we, you know, it, it seems like in retrospect, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. looking back at home movies and things, we saw it creeping in. So it felt like a shock to get that kind of a, a diagnosis at his age. And he was certainly um, at that age very coherent and he was still driving and, you know, going to the store and mm-hmm. he had only recently retired from his office job at the Pentagon. So he he didn't feel like that was an appropriate diagnosis, but the doctors were confident and 
the more that we looked back on things like, oh, wow, there it is, a little bit there, a little bit there. And and we were sort of able to all make peace with it. And then we started aggressive treatment um, with as many experimental medications and therapies that we could. But as you probably know, um, we can only do so much. Right. And he was diagnosed when you, you were living in, in Florida at the time. Yes. Okay. And But you're not from Florida. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. So my grandparents, my, my grandfather was um, an Army veteran, and he, uh, he flew helicopters in Vietnam. And when he was shot down in Vietnam, he, he lost his leg. And that proved to be probably the greatest challenge um, when we you know, fast forward to him becoming less and less able to care for himself. Uh-huh. But for, for the you know, many years, I don't even know, 30 years after he, he left Vietnam, he had a prosthetic, and I was not around in those years, um, but mm-hmm. he was very much ambulatory. And he, you know, like I said, he drove, he golfed. Wow. He was, he was you know, he, he's, and he still worked. He worked uh, at the Pentagon. He worked in intelligence and he worked in helicopter technology development. And he, you know, had a very full and long career with the military, even after such a serious injury. But, no, my, my grandparents had a very, a very full life. There's lots of travel. We we lived all over the world. Uh, like I said, because I live with them. Gosh, before he took the Pentagon job, we we were in Europe. We were in the Middle East. We 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 all lived a very good life, and I'm very grateful for that and for those memories mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. Because things things were so wonderful for so long. So when he retired from the Pentagon, um, which it was just time. I think he was 52, 53. We we moved from D.C. down to Florida, as you do. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so uh, I was I was pretty devastated to move down here. Actually, I love D.C. and I still do. So I I didn't really want to leave uh, Washington, but uh, we did. We came down here, and I you know, we made the most of it. They bought a nice little house in a quiet residential neighborhood. In and Jupiter, how old were you at that point? I think I was probably fourteen. Okay. 13. Okay. So you moved from D.C. To Florida when mm-hmm. you're about 14. Mm-hmm. And so, and then things were business as usual for a while. He was settling into retirement and he was golfing a lot and enjoying being outside and gardening and walking, all the things that older, newly retired people tend to do. And, right. you know, it just, the, the, the creep of the disease was very slow, but eventually he was out driving and he called us. I don't know who, me or my grandmother at home from his cell phone, speaking very calmly and very coherently, just saying, I left the house and I don't know where I was going. Huh. Do you remember where I was going? And it was weird because wow. he he had never said anything like that before. And but that's kind of the those are the kind of things that ha- that happened at the beginning where we sort of brush it off and we're like, "Are you okay? What's wrong with you?" And come home. And he'd be like, "I'm not sure I remember how to get home." So it it, it escalated from there. And then it, it, there'd be moments of clarity and then moments like that. Um, but those moments uh, became more and more frequent and. Eventually, we had to tell him to stop driving, and that was the first thing. And then we kind of, he started wanting to go out less and less. He didn't feel comfortable. He got confused. And it was, the whole thing was, was extremely devastating in terms of just the fact that we knew what we were dealing with and we knew it was not going to get better mm-hmm. because of the kind of man he was and how independent and how strong and outgoing he was mm-hmm. uh, in mm-hmm. his in most of his life. And, and to see that kind of degenerative disease takeover, it, it felt like bringing down a really uh, a really deep-rooted tree. And it was very, very upsetting to see that for all of us. We were all 
just just crushed to see him kind of taken down and so young because my grandmother was the same age, you know, is the same age and was still working and still very much uh, mentally sound, which we're grateful for today. But it, it just all felt like it was too soon. Yeah. So when you moved down there at 14, you moved in with your grandparents. Yes. And was your mom living with you as well at the time? No, my mother uh, had remarried, and she was living in the area, in Palm Beach County, in a different house. And she and I had had some issues uh, with her new husband, which is a whole other saga in itself. But I Mm -hmm. made the executive decision (laughs) to live with my grandparents, which I'm sure she's still angry about to this day. And that was 15 years ago. (laughs) At a young age, Uh, you made that decision, and you you had that choice to make that decision? (laughs) <laughs> my grandmother, because she she was sort of felt in the position of a second mother or a second primary guardian, allowed that to happen, mm-hmm. which was probably not uh, not a great decision. Um, and there was there were some issues there with my mother and, and the sort of power struggle. But I I don't know. I just it just happened. But in the end, I think it it worked out for the best because I I was able to be there uh, in the house and be of more assistance. And I think that was part of the, the raw deal. Um, is that if I was going to be allowed to sort of leave my mother's home, that I was going to have to really contribute and and make it worth the strife. But, but you know, we, we really didn't even know what that meant, you know, contribute sure. and, and sure. help out around right. the house didn't mean what it ended up meaning at right. that moment. So, mm-hmm. you know, and I was selfish and, and 15 probably, and so... You were a teenager. I wanted to do my own thing. <laughs> right. normal. And, and, of course. But as, as things got more intense, I like to think I stepped up to the plate, really because we didn't have a choice. My, my grandmother was still working, and she, she was working nights. So she would leave um, at about 7 p.m., and she was at 7 p. to 7 a. Mm-hmm. And then she would try to sleep um, something during the day. She had to sleep. And while I was in school, but she, we had this sort of arrangement where I – when I got home from school and high school in Florida runs from about seven thirty till at two thirty PM. Mm-hmm. So when I would get home just before three, I would l- allow her to sleep until she had to go to work. So I would stay and I-, I hate to say keep an eye on him, but in the beginning it really was just as simple as making sure he didn't leave the house and right. making sure he was eating and that he knew where the bathroom was if he needed to to use it. And and it it started out um easy enough. Just be there mm-hmm. in the house. Mm-hmm. And just exist with him. Mm-hmm. And um, then she would go to work and I would stay in at, at night. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this wasn't, it wasn't seven days a week. She was working maybe three or four days a week. So it was, it was a decent balance of, uh, of power and, and health, you know, trying to, to make it work. And of course mm-hmm. my mother was there and would come by when she could, but everybody had, had commitment. And mm-hmm. it was one of those situations where my position as being someone who didn't have a job and didn't have priorities outside of school made me sort of an ideal candidate to be there mm-hmm. and to be useful. Mm-hmm. Did you resent that? Pardon? Did, did I resent you? that? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you no, were a teenager. I, how, how did that affect yeah. your, your social life? Well, I, you know, I was really, I was really blessed with um, some wonderful friends who, and we did have a very nice house in, in a great sort of central area. So uh-huh. my friends really loved my grandparents. Oh. Um, they were very close with, with to this, you know, still my grandmother um, is close with these, these girls that I was friends with in high school. And they would come over, you know, they wouldn't leave me out of social things. They would come over and, and hang out and they would spend time with me and my grandfather. And he knew who they were for a time. And so it was, 
it was very relaxed, and I I feel very lucky that they kind of understood this was just something that that, that happens, mm-hmm. and whether they dealt with it themselves, I or you know with their parents and their grandparents, I'm not even sure. But I think that they just they really stepped up to the plate to keep me in sort of some semblance of a social circle. Yeah, uh, uh-huh. which was wonderful, wonderful, uh-huh. and uh-huh. they were there nearly till the end. Uh-huh. Oh, that's really them. great. So, did you talk with them about? what was going on with him? I mean, you know, medically and all that. And I think I'm thinking of, of probably my, my dearest friend in particular who was there the most. She, she was remarkable. She has children of her own now. And I see a lot of the things that I experienced with her and with my grandmother now with her and her own children, which is wonderful to see that. But it was just very natural. Um, we, we actually didn't talk about it that much. I didn't, mm-hmm want to talk about it and we tried to you know talk about other things and we would include him in conversation she you know she would speak with him and ask him if he wanted to watch the ball game or if there was something on TV. you know it was mm-hmm. it was so relaxed and it was refreshingly not about how I was feeling or how how upsetting it was because I think it was we all knew we all knew this was terrible and mm-hmm. and any sympathy if anybody had experienced it was uh, was certainly welcome and appreciated but I kind of enjoyed not having to talk about it yeah, all the time. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you were all kind of stepping up, and the people around you really rallied. And We did. Yeah. We did. So, and it was not easy for everyone, but it was they really did. They did their best. In what ways was it difficult? Do you have any examples? Of course. My, my grandparents had five children. My mother was the only girl, uh-huh. uh, the youngest. Mm-hmm. And she really shouldered the majority of of the stress and, and was really the sounding board for my grandmother, who was, who was just, uh, you know, a disaster pretty much throughout oh, yeah. all of it, just could mm. barely keep it together. And she was, you know, she was feeling overwhelmed and um, as, as you can imagine. And uh, my mother was there a lot, either on the phone or, you know, listening to her or, you know, running errands or grocery shopping, anything that, that I couldn't do or that I wasn't, you know, she didn't feel comfortable talking to me about it with my mother and the four boys, um, her four sons, all of them, I, I hate to say, were just, they were not able to process it and really come up to bat. They, mm-hmm. they, they would say repeatedly, oh, I just don't like seeing him like this. I, I just, I can't, I don't want to see him like this. I don't, I don't want to remember him like this. I, I can't go to the hospital. It just, I, oh, it freaks me out. These are grown men. And mm-hmm. to this, and, and speaking mm-hmm. of resent, you know, I, I resent them now as an adult, in, in, a, in a measured way. I mean, sure. Some of them, I know they it's were natural. struggling. But I resent how they, how they dealt with that. And with my grandmother's age, you know, advancing and various medical things happening, they're still, I'm, I'm still, I don't want to say I'm her caregiver because she lives alone and she's very capable of, of living alone. But when something happens, if she, you know, needs a ride to the doctor, they, they don't ever seem to be able to, to do that. And I'm, I'm seeing this repeated behavior like I did 15 years ago, because they just have this aversion to even witnessing their parents getting older. And I'm not sure if there's something about them being my grandparents that makes it easier, um, because I, I don't know. It'll, yeah. We'll find out when my own mother uh, gets older. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, they, they were just, it was so hard for them to, to see it, that, that they just refused. They refused to participate a lot of the time, and it was, it was so upsetting. Yeah, and then it felt like there was more pressure on my mother and more pressure on myself in the house to pick up the slack. Uh huh. Does your mother speak with them? <laughs> yes, we we certainly do. We speak with them. We see them. Two of them live locally, which made it even harder uh, oh, that they weren't yeah. 
uh, in participating. Um, mm-hmm. One does live, you know, on the other side of the country, so that was a little more forgivable that he couldn't quite be there every day. Yeah. Um, but no, we've I think we've all we've all made our peace with with it and and mm-hmm. how everybody deals with tragedy is a bit strong, but how everyone deals with illness in a different way. And I think we can't we can't really dwell on it. And I hope that I only hope that they have made peace that they are able to sleep at night and have a, have a clear head about how they handle the situation. Because I know that's one of the things that I can sort of take with me. Uh, right. is that I feel like I did everything I could, even when it wasn't comfortable. And, um, and I'm grateful that I can, I can say that. Well, that's a, that's a really nice thing to be able to say. I mean, it gives yeah. you strength, I think. I don't know. I, feel, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I cared for my mom. <laughs> and so that was rewarding even as tough as it was it really was rewarding so your grandfather lived for how long well um he he was diagnosed at 56 and um he died in 2004 and so he was uh 69 um when that happened Mm -hmm. yes and um so he had just turned 69 and for the last two years maybe year and a half he, uh, we had to put him in a nursing home, mm-hmm. and that was that was terrible. It, we we started out where, and of course, being you know military vet, he had we had better um, healthcare coverage than a lot of people who find themselves in the situation. But you know, leading up to that, we we fought it. We fought it tooth and nail, having to make that decision, even at the point when we had to convert you know a downstairs sort of living room space to his bedroom because it was on one floor rather than having stairs. He didn't want to wear his artificial leg anymore, so it, it was sort of necessitated that we keep him downstairs. And we, we got a hospital-grade bed, and we, we tried hiring night nursing and, and assistance. And then we, when we had to put him in a nursing home, there's there's a couple down here. There's, I'm sure there are everywhere that are privately run and are like four-star hotels. Mm-hmm. And they're, mm-hmm. you go in and you think, oh, my God, there's a piano player in the lobby and right. everything's served on China. And it, it looks like uh, you know a beautiful stately home. Only it's a you know healthcare facility, and you think that's that's where he's got to be. He's got to be in this place, and we we got him in, and we could only afford it for about a month because keeping him there was nearly double our rent oh, or our yeah. mortgage. Mm-hmm. And we we just we didn't have the money, and so we once we'd exhausted all of our funds, then we had to put him at the the VA hospital, which is a hospital and it did what it was supposed to do. It took care of him and it just was not the environment that I think anybody envisions having to, having to take your parents to, or your grandparents. It's, you don't want to do that. And, but we had to, so once we were unable to, to keep him at home, just because we we couldn't lift him anymore. Once he wasn't able to get up out of bed on his own, my five foot tall grandmother and I could not physically get him up and, and around the house. And it was, it was too much for to non-geriatric care specialists <laughs> right. uh, to, to manage. You know, she was very good at, at everything else, and she was wonderful at, at changing dressings for his leg and everything, but it just, that, that was not either of our fortes doing that, and the physical aspect of it was too much. So when we did have to put him at the VA, we, we certainly all supplemented as much time as we could to, to be there in the mm-hmm. VA mm-hmm. and to be with him for meals and to, to be with him just to, to go and sit. Even if he wasn't, he, he had stopped speaking to us. There was, it was not really verbal. We would try to go. I had homework to do or if she had charting, we would try to go sit with him and mm-hmm. just be there to keep him company, even if he didn't really interact with us at all. So we did do that for, for a long time until the end. And you were in high, you were still in high school 
um, at yes. this point. Mm-hmm. I was. I was. I had graduated. I was out of high school for about a year and a half. Well, for the last year, I was still living at home um, after high school, and I was working and going to to night school mm-hmm. to um, a community college. So mm-hmm. I was still in the area for the next year. Okay. And so after your grandfather died, you remained living with your grandmother? I did for the next about year and a half. And then in 2006, early 2006, she moved to Georgia where she's from, where they were both from, my grandparents, and uh, to be closer to her, her sisters and her extended cousin family. And I stayed down in Florida for about another six or seven months. And then I decided I was, I would go to college in Georgia and I moved back in with her. Oh. <laughs> she was my college roommate as well. <laughs> That's great. So I, yeah, I followed her back to, to middle Georgia. But. Oh, isn't that interesting? And is she there now then? <laughs> is she there now? No, nope, she's, she's, oh, she's back, back in Florida. She's Through back. <laughs> a serendipitous turn of events, she's back down here and, and so am I. So we've both come back to Florida. That's so touching. <laughs> so you see her I do I, I see her um, frequently I, I live unfortunately I live a solid you know 40 minute drive from her we're still within the county I'm just happen to be on the south end and she's kind of on the north border um, mm-hmm. so it's, it's a bit farther than I would like it to be but she's got a very nice house uh, all on one story which is good and mm-hmm. she you know she's she's comfortable and she's enjoying her retirement and we try to see each other as much as possible and she she takes trips and she visits my mother on you know where she lives now on the west coast and she's still driving so she's still driving she has a thunderbird convertible she's refusing <laughs> to get old gratefully, so. how, how old is she now <laughs> she just turned 80 in october Wow, and she has a Thunderbird convertible. Good she does. for her, man. That is awesome. <laughs> as much as we try to talk her out of that, uh, that you know. <laughs> well, let me there ask you, you something. This is a bit of a delicate sure. question, but people who have gone through this, I'm sure, would not find this surprising. Did you experience some relief after your grandfather died? Yeah, of course we did. I, I yeah. mean, it is a delicate question, but I think, you you know, you'd be lying or almost selfish if you if you said no. Um There were so many, like I said, I I think that it it circles back to having to remember that his life and the life that he was able to give his children and then subsequently me was such a fantastic adventure. And we all just have to remind ourselves that this was not the life of someone who never left their hometown and and never really saw anything. You know, when, when when he was ill and it got worse, we all had to tell ourselves, you know, this is a life that was well lived, and it's absolutely terrible that it uh, had to end 50 years sooner than we wanted it to. That I'm sure he wanted it to, but those were 50, 69 years well spent, and mm-hmm. and it was terrible. The last the last year or so of Alzheimer's, if it is only a year, I felt like that was merciful because mm-hmm. I did not want to watch that happen for the next decade. I don't think anybody did, but yeah, yeah, there was relief. Mm-hmm. There was relief for all of us. You mentioned when we spoke on the phone briefly before that you attended a caregivers conference. Can you share <laughs> yes, your memories of that experience? <laughs> sure, sure. Um, I was 15, and my grandmother and I signed up. It was at an embassy suite in mm-hmm. Palm Beach Gardens. Mm-hmm. And so she just told me, you know, there's this two-day thing, and she's like, there's some, you know, you spend X amount of dollars to go do it, and then you can sign up for X amount of little workshops. And she's like, I think it would be really good for us because 
you know, we don't really know what we're doing. And he was, he was still at home at the time, you know. So we both thought, yeah, that, that sounds like a really good idea. And so we went on a Saturday, um, I can remember the night, to this, this workshop. And neither one of us knew what to expect. Like, like I said, she, though she was a nurse, she was labor and delivery. So it's mm-hmm. nothing, mm-hmm. nothing like what she, mm-hmm. uh, and she hadn't done geriatric care since mm-hmm. she was in, like, nursing school. So. Mm-hmm. So we we both kind of needed a refresher, and so we signed up for three workshops: a you know sort of first aid, low grade you know medical one, you know about dressings and about sanitation and things, which um, as I remember was extremely useful mm-hmm. and was great. And then there was another one on emergency response that was sort of CPR. It was um, handling falls. Those two things I, I remember thinking I learned a lot, and they were totally worth seeing, and. Then there was a third class, but before we went to our third, the afternoon class, we had to go to sort of the the keynote, and that's uh-huh. the part that I I thought was worth really telling you about because huh. the keynote um, was really hyped up. There was this woman who was coming to speak, and uh, she was apparently a big deal. She I think she's a motivational speaker. That okay. must have been her official title. I wish I remember her name, but I don't believe she had anything to do with long term care or medicine or anything. I think it was, she was just possibly a life coach or something like that. Mm-hmm. So she got up on the stage and we were all in this grand ballroom and we're all kind of sitting around people. And I had, I remember I had a little name tag, like a lanyard name tag that said caregiver on it. Cause uh-huh. you were, you either got one that said you were, you know, a medical professional or like a civilian caregiver and mine's <laughs> right. a caregiver. And everyone thought that like everyone I encountered thought that was just the craziest thing because I was so little and I'm only about five feet tall myself, so it looked like two children walking around saying that they were caregivers, my grandmother and I, but oh um, <laughs> we're sitting in this ballroom, and the woman starts off speaking, and this is a room full of very vulnerable and people that were in a very delicate situation. Sure. Most of them were going through exactly what we were going through, we, we found out. People wanted to talk, they wanted to sort of, not commiserate, but to sort of share experiences a little bit and... It was a tense room. Yeah. And this woman starts speaking, and she's telling the story. I'd never experienced anything like that before, like a a, a motivational speaker or a public speaker like that. But it seemed like she starts telling a story that I somehow, my grandmother and I immediately knew it was a made-up story. Oh, um, really? Well, of course, because you think that they have to set up some kind of scene in order to make their point. And her point was... And I do remember this. I don't remember anything else about her 45-minute speech. But I remember the point she was trying to make with her fabricated and silly story that did not happen was that we have an emotional bank and we make deposits and people make withdrawals. It was a very convoluted sort of uh, <laughs> message about how we need to – in essence, it was a decent idea because she was saying we all needed to take time for ourselves. We need to make sure that our emotional banks – were right. in the green so that we could continue to take care of those who needed us, which makes sense. And I sure. remembered that. So that's a, a decent point, and it's true. But the story was so convoluted and silly about her banking, I don't even know. But so I was, she'd already kind of lost my grandmother and I both a little bit. We were sitting there <laughs> sort of giggling. I'm like, what is this? My grandmother's very funny. She's, she's very, very, she's a young 80, and at the end she was a young well, yeah. So You, we got, you like, had me yet. She drives a Thunderbird, so. <laughs> yeah. We were both like, well, this is stupid. And mm-hmm. so um, 
we, we obviously let her finish and we politely clap. And then she introduces a musical group, which was weird. And I'm like, okay. And it was like a little three piece sort of semi acoustic group. And they started to play this very melancholy music. And it was, it was just, I think one or two songs, but as soon as they started, it was almost like it wasn't a song the the, the lead singer was singing about being a caregiver, about having someone you know, oh, well, when it was almost like a diary entry that she had tried to turn into a song. It didn't even <laughs> rhyme. Everyone in that room it, it, immediately, though we had been a little bit uplifted by the, uh, the speaker sure. and her message once she got past her silly premise. We we're like, <laughs> okay, well, that's fair enough. We should all take time for ourselves and stay strong and healthy and so that we can be strong for other people. Mm-hmm. Then this group starts and they're singing verbatim about the ones that you love are, are not remembering you and they're dying and what can you do? And it's so hard to see them like that and and one day they'll be gone everyone in that room was doubled over this is women this is mostly women and wives who were probably about to be widows and you know daughters and it, it was it was majority older women and i i was absolutely horrified by this and i i was looking around with wide eyes like is this serious what is this supposed to do and my grandmother's fighting back tears and i grabbed her by the hand i'm like Let's go. I'm like, we have to get out of here. I'm like, we can go right now. I'm like, forget it. We'll walk out. We were like in the front, you know, front of the thing. And she's like, it's so embarrassing. She's like, I, said, it's just, I don't want to get I'm like, I'm like, get up. We're leaving. So we got up and we walked out and she composed herself. And I'm like, I don't know what the hell that was, but I'm like, we don't have to stay. I'm like, we don't have to stay for any more of this. I'm like, we can go right now. We can go home. Mm-hmm. And she's like, no, I know I want to stay. But that was, it was such an insulting and weird thing to do. Please. I don't know if that's happened, if you've heard of any other stories, but just, I don't know if it was supposed to be comforting, but it was, it was, it was like I was saying, you know, you don't want to talk about that. Can't we just have a day? All we yeah. do is talk about this. All we right. do is think about what's going to happen tomorrow. And we went to our final workshop after that. I actually had a chance to pull it together and I was so angry. I was like, what, what, what? there was no point in that. And the final thing was probably the greatest I'm so glad we stayed for it because I I don't remember what the point of that workshop was. I don't remember what we were supposed to be learning, but I remember there was a, like a whole extended family in there, ladies mostly, and mm-hmm. they just they immediately laid in and, and the woman, the poor little woman who was trying to run the workshop, lost her audience completely. She did not have control of the room, which was <laughs> <laughs> which happens because these other ladies we're just sitting there talking sort of to the room and each other saying, I cannot believe that crazy band of white people singing like that and making everybody cry. I can't believe it. How dare they? Oh, my God. And, but it was great to hear yeah. someone say it yeah. out loud. And, and, um, and so we were all agreeing. We're like, yeah, that was, that was terrible, and I don't know what that was about. And then the, um, they said, you know what? I need to laugh. Do y'all want to laugh? This is not the person running the group. This is just a lady who was in there. In and the audience? Like, yeah. And oh, it was, it was good for her. Room, like a mini, mini ballroom. There was maybe 35 people in there mm-hmm. and in this workshop. And she's and we're like, yes, please tell us something to make us laugh because we're all so suicidal after that terrible musical display. Oh, my and goodness. she tells us this story and she, she's talking about how, oh, my daddy at home and, and, you know, I take care of my little boy. And my teenage son and my daddy all at the same time. And she's like, I do all my laundry and I just throw everybody's laundry together and I put it in a big pile on the bed and I tell my daddy and my boys, go get your stuff from the laundry and, you know, take it to your room. And so they all usually do it and everything's fine and they grab their, their, uh, their pants, their shoes, you know, the socks and everything. And, and she's like, and then one day, um, I do the laundry in the morning and then I take my daddy 
out for lunch, and then I, I, I take him out in the evening to pick up some things at the store. She's like, he's walking funny all day, and he's just, he's so uncomfortable, he can't tell me why. And she's like, and then I get home, and it's time for his bath, and she's like, damned if that man hadn't put on my five-year-old son's Superman underwear, <laughs> and has been walking around in his five-year-old underwear all day. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody loved it though because it, it's such a real a real moment that exactly like, oh, what you needed yeah it's just what we needed a little yeah. comic relief and I right. don't think anything else happened in that except that we all had a good laugh and we all tried to find a little bit of humor in uh-huh. this terrible terrible hand that everybody seemed to have been dealt and that was a great takeaway to think that you know, we we should try to laugh when we get the rare opportunity. We should really laugh. absolutely should try to laugh at it. I completely agree with you. That's one of the things I <laughs> always say. Always look for humor. How awkward it was, though, for everyone in that room to be subjected <laughs> to what was basically like an SNL skit, like a parody, almost. It sounds like, right? I mean, no, it was crazy. It was. Such a weird, you know, well intended too, probably. <laughs> you know, well intended, but just really missing the mark. I actually felt felt great that other people thought that it was it was such a strange way to spend a Saturday crying in a ballroom over some yeah. strange musical group. It, but <laughs> I mean, it, you know, the whole <laughs> the whole thing was, you know, at the end, two out of three of the, the workshop were really useful and helpful. So if right. anybody is ever thinking of going to one of these. I would certainly say to, to give it a shot. Right. Overall, it was worth worthwhile. <laughs> uh-huh. But how interesting but, um, that at that point, at age 15, it was normal for you to consider going to a caregiver conference. That your life had, beca- suppose, had, you had, yeah. you had established this norm. For a lot of 15-year-olds, going to a caregiving conference on the weekend would seem just <laughs> what? And you were like, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Let's go. I mean, that gives you an idea of how normative the whole experience had become for you at a really young age. Well, I hope that it, I would hope that it would become normative for, for everybody. I think that, you know, the way that my uncles reacted to everything was, was very sad and it should, it should become more normal. I'm not, I'm not Italian and I'm, I'm not Latin. I know there's a lot of cultures in modern day now, even in Florida, even here, that you know, it's just understood that you know that your parents are going to remain with you in the home. You're going to keep them at home. And you're going to take care of the older generation. It's not really something that we do overall anymore. Keeping our elderly parents in the home, and so having like a multi generational household. And I think I think it used to be sort of normal. And if we can keep our our parents at home or our, our grandparents, then we should try to do that. And I would love to see more young people not have to go through that, but be ready and be comfortable with it and know that they have support other than strange conferences with a bunch of people that aren't their age. So it'd be nice if there was some sort of network for younger people. Mm -hmm. Well, I was going to ask how this has affected your attitude toward getting older and aging. Well, you know, if I'm going to be honest, um, I, first of all, I have great long-term care insurance now. Uh (laughs) I've made more more so than is, than is offered by my current insurance, uh, plan. I've, I've tried to go above and beyond. That's one of the things that I think everybody in the family, my family has taken away is that we, we need some coverage. You know, we need to be putting away to pay for that nice, um, four star home mm-hmm. with a view of the water because mm-hmm. none of us, none of us want to go down like that in the VA. No, nobody wants that. I don't want that. But I also know that there, there does come a point when you can't, unless you are a medical professional, Keep keep someone at home, you know, until the very very end, yeah, without a great deal of outside help. Long term care is very expensive, though. 
it's extremely expensive. So that's mm-hmm. why, and it's almost like a savings account sort mm-hmm. of plan mm-hmm. we've all we've all gotten <laughs> for ourselves because it's it's not so much you know the, the phrase you know being a burden is not it's not a burden on us emotionally, but it's it's financially impossible to 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 do all the things we want to be able to do without um, huge resources, and we just didn't have that. So saving a lot for my own um, hopefully <laughs> healthy old age. If I don't mm-hmm. need it, excellent. But if I do, it'll be there. And how old are um, you now? I'm 30, turn 30. Uh-huh. So, but I think that it's affected my interest in, in having children. I don't think that I want to have children of my own. I think that to see, to see the kind of things that happened with my family and with, with all the children, you know, I said the children, my uncle, arguing about this and, and what to do and, and, you know, what kind of decisions to make and and who should be there and, you know, how, when was the last time you visited him and was anybody at the VA today and all of that, it, it did feel like, like they, they felt obligated um, to be there for the most part. And I, I hated that and I hated seeing that. And I knew that when my grandfather was still able to understand kind of, he was still cognitively there. I think he hated that. He hated that everyone felt like they had to take care of him. And, and so one of those things that I, I hear a lot when, and I hear a lot of it um, from any stranger since, since I've gotten married, uh, say, so when are the children coming? And, mm-hmm. and if I'm honest, and I say, I don't really think I'm going to have any kids. My life's pretty great right now, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first refrains and most common one is, well, who's going to take care of you when you're old? And that's such a, it's such a funny thing to say to me, to anybody. But generally, I try to brush it off if I'm not trying to start an argument with an old lady, but because uh, they're always old ladies. Uh, I, I don't know, but I tend to say, well, hopefully I have enough money that I don't need anybody to take care of me, that I don't have to do that to anybody in my family, that I can have a five-star retirement home that they can come hang out and listen to the piano being played in my lobby. Hopefully that's, <laughs> that's my outcome. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to have to put anybody in that position. And I think maybe it's a bit depressing to, to view it that way, but it is, it's absolutely something that was affected by this, this part of my life. It's interesting because you're in, a, as somebody who learned so much from that experience, you're probably in a better position than most people your age who haven't been through what you've been through to share your, what you learned with your kids and to impress upon them that sense of not duty in terms of obligation, but I know what you, you know what I'm saying? I, I do. Yeah. And your generation is the hope for the future to be more enlightened, you know, and you are. I have friends who are a lot younger than me, and they're so, in my mind, in many ways, so much better equipped to deal with the reality of aging than I was. I grew up in a, in a, in a Greek culture where we did take care and respect our elders. So mm-hmm. I have that reference point, and it's helped me a lot. But it's interesting to hear your attitude about having kids framed in that context. But it com- it makes sense on the one hand, but on the other hand, that you're it's a bit the- of a tragedy. Well, I don't know if it's <laughs> a tragedy. It's ironic. I My mean, mother thinks so. She does. Well, <laughs> do you think you might change your mind? No pressure. <laughs> no, I, you know, I would never say never say never, I suppose, is the, the only reasonable way to look at it. But I have dedicated, um, I, I believe, to be a huge chunk of my life in the last five or six years to volunteering and to spending time with, with young people. I'm pretty active with the Junior League mm-hmm. and with the Red Cross mm-hmm. and the Y. And I do a lot of things locally. And I, I feel fortunate to have the time to be able to do that. And I, of all the, the things that the League, in particular the Junior League, uh, focuses on, 
I find my forte has been with young adults and teenagers. And I, I seem to be able to relate to them and to talk to them a lot more easily than I can a five or a six year old. And, and everybody's different, you know, who, who likes to volunteer and spend time and, and, and their, their strengths lie all over the map. But I think that mentoring some of these younger people is sort of maybe that outlet that I hope to make use of is if I can influence anybody to do something great or to be there for their families or to get their act together and mm-hmm. step up, then mm-hmm. I, I, I hope that that can, can be my way of sort of impressing upon younger people, other people's children, <laughs> that, <laughs> that, you know, they're capable of a lot. And yeah. That yeah. they don't have to be typical, selfish teenagers. And I, I'm, for the record, I feel like you are absolutely deifying me a little bit, and I do not deserve to be, <laughs> to be talked about quite in the way you are, because it was not 100% of the time you know, a selfless sort of Joan of Arc mentality. I mean, I'm, I was 16, 17, you know, it was, right. it was a struggle. It was absolutely a struggle. And there were times I, I wasn't as focused on my family as I should have been. And there are times that they needed me and that I wasn't there. And I hope that the, the times that I was there outweighed the times that I wasn't. That's what I, I hope for. And I think in the end, I, I do feel, I do feel like I made up for, you know, my selfish moments in the end, but <laughs> Don't shortchange yourself, of Natasha. Oh, no, but you're giving me a big head, and that's not fair. No. Not realistic. You, <laughs> do you have siblings? I have a brother, but he is 10 years younger than me. So at the time all this was happening, I don't even know if he remembers what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, he was so little, sure. and he was living with my mother, so he was sure. trying to remove from the situation. I'm kind of glad he was. Are there any tools or resources that you wish you'd had that you know now that you wish you had known about in terms of helping Well, you? honestly... Just because of the, the climate of with technology at the time, I don't think that I think if if I the internet the internet um, <laughs> had been more of a thing or at least a thing that was more widely used, right? Because it you know, wasn't I think back now. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't. But now like, there's these um, forums and message boards and sort of online uh, communities that are are really helpful. I, you know, I have friends with sadly with children who have rare diseases or they have just mommy groups or anything, and they find they find comfort and strength in other people's experiences, and they, they can get a support group together and and advice. And even if it's not medical, I think just the the emotional support that people can get from finding others going through what they're going through on the internet is, is remarkable. And I wish that that had existed in a way that was kind of more developed at that time, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, mm-hmm. But it, I think it's hard to do face to face. Like I couldn't have done more of those sort of conventions because it can be so depressing. Yeah. And everybody, everybody's so bereft mm-hmm. um, about what they're going through that they cease to be helpful to anyone else. And everyone wants so much help and needs so much support that they almost can't give it, mm-hmm. um, us included. Yeah. So it was it was difficult face to face. And I think that if you could have more of a I don't know more of the the internet support and everything, that I think we're it's easier to to share a bright moment and to have that network existing for you. Mm-hmm. I think the smaller group. It sounds like the workshops were helpful, but the large scale Definitely. presentations were like just not working. And maybe no, it's because no. of the scale of that particular event that it felt impersonal, in addition to the fact that it was clumsy. It just was very clumsy. That's a good word for it. Yes. Really awful. Like, just a bad attempt at applying a sales conference techniques to... God, that is what it felt like. Right? Yes. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. what it sounds like. The image of 
people in a large ballroom getting pumped up to sell magic creams or something. You know, it's, that, that's what that comes to my mind right away. I just have this. And that's not the environment you want to be in when you already feel isolated. But the workshops no. sounded like they, they, had, were great. they had some value. So Yeah, and, uh, and there were so many that we didn't take that I, you know, some of them, some of them were um, possibly uh, religious focused, some mm-hmm. of them, that, mm-hmm. you know, it was just something for everyone. But for sure, anybody who's going to be taking care of a family member in their home should have absolutely have a basic understanding of first aid and emergency protocol. That is so indispensably important. And so if you don't already know things like that, then by all means, you should find some, either the Red Cross or someone who can teach you what to do in the event of an emergency like that. And I think you can, you can go a lot further. You can keep someone at home a lot longer. You can keep them certainly more comfortable if you have a basic understanding of, of how to do that. Yeah. I guess the overall takeaway I have from, from that is that you really, you really learn how, like what you're capable of. Um, you say, like, oh, I can't, I can't see him in the hospital. I can't see this happening. Yeah, you can, you can, you don't want to, but you can do it. And you really have to tell yourself that in order to get through it, and you can't let something like this ruin the rest of your life. And and you know, my grandmother has hopefully a lot, a lot more years to live, and I hope that we can make her remaining years fun and full and exciting. I think I would hope that everybody who is going through something like that, whether now or in the future, can power through it and know that it's not the end. And they really should try to find the little things to laugh at and to not let this be a defining thing for your family. Mm -hmm. I like that. And I appreciate your willingness to talk about this stuff. I know it's going back in time a little bit, but yeah, (laughs) it seems to have had such a big impact on you that your recollections are pretty clear. I'm glad they are. I'm glad I was able to remember because I remember a lot before, um, but I remember this clear, very clearly, you know, the, the good and the bad. And I think it's part of the whole picture. If, you know, if I wasn't around the end, then um, it wouldn't make the things that came before that uh, so special. Yeah, it's very positive. Thanks. <laughs> Natasha Rodding, thank you so much for being on the show. And I appreciate your, of op- course. your openness. You Take of course. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. our show for today. Thanks for listening. I'd love to know what you thought about today's show. You can email me at Jana at agewise.com. That's J-A-N-A at A-G-E-W-Y-Z or Z as my Canadian mother says. You can also find me online at agewise.com and listen to this podcast and lots of other fresh ones on the Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand radio network that's always on for you. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. Until then, age well, age wise.